This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year in music for 1990, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1990. We also make the case for you to vote for Cheryl Crow to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Museum is the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 1990. In music, Leonard Bernstein ended his conducting career after conducting the Boston Symphony Orchestra one final time. He later passed away in October of that year. It was also confirmed in 1990 that Millie Vanilli did not sing on their debut album. The TV show MTV Unplugged premiered to not much fanfare at that point. That would change after a while, especially after Paul McCartney did an episode. Squeeze was the first act to be featured, by the way. Gloria Estefan was severely injured when her tour bus crashed. She would eventually recover. Roger Waters, along with an all-star list of artists, performed Pink Floyd's classic album The Wall in front of what remained of the Berlin Wall at that time. Curtis Mayfield was paralyzed when lighting equipment fell on him during a performance in Brooklyn, New York. Madonna did her controversial Blonde Ambition tour along with releasing her controversial video for Justify My Love. Artists who were born in 1990 included Machine Gun Kelly, Rita Ora, The Weeknd, Iggy Azalea, SZA, Logic, Marin Morris, Carly Pierce, DJ Io, Nadia O, DJ Mustard, DJ Elenium, Zach Farrow of Paramore, DJ Mac J, rapper Fredo Santana, rapper YG, Andy Bearsack of the Black Veil Brides, Olivia Jean of the Black Bells, Soldier Boy, Black Bear, B. Simone, Sean Kingston, Luke Combs, Hozier, DJ Genius, Mandy Capisto of Monroe's, James Bay, record producer Andrew Watt, singer Jojo, and Young Hyun of Shiny. Artists who unfortunately passed away in 1990 included Stevie Ray Vaughan in a helicopter accident, the aforementioned conductor and composer extraordinaire Mr. Leonard Bernstein, guitarist Alan Collins of Leonard Skinnerd. Tom Fogarty, Del Shannon, Peter Swivel of Looking Glass, Johnny Ray, Rich Greck of Blind Faith, Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone, the forerunner to Pearl Jam, jazz great Sarah Vaughn, saxophonist Dexter Gordon, Floyd Butler, Stiv Baters of the Dead Boys, trumpet player Clyde McCoy, Brent Midland of the Grateful Dead, entertainer extraordinaire Miss Pearl Bailey, Lou DeWitt of the Statler Brothers, B.J. Wilson of Procol Harum, jazz drummer Art Blakey, band leader Xavier Kugel, and composer Aaron Copeland. Bands that formed in 1990 included Seven Year Bitch, Ace of Bass, 
Acid Test, Another Bad Creation, Blessed Union of Souls, Blind Melon, Body Count, Brooks and Dunn, Candlebox, Charles and Eddie, two bands named Chimera in different parts of the world, Clutch, Contraband, The Coors, Cracker, Curve, Diablo, Delight, Enigma, H-Town, Juno Reactor, Crisscross, Letters to Cleo, Lords of the Underground, Mob Deep, Moe, Entrance, New Power Generation, The Neptunes, The Party, Pearl Jam, The Prodigy, Republic, Revolver, Screwed Up Click, Stereolab, Rusted Root, TLC, Temple of the Dog, Travis, The Verve, VNV Nation, Tool, Tsunami, Take That, Wild Orchid, and Escape. Bands who either broke up before their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus included the Blow Monkeys, Camper Van Beethoven, Climby Fisher, Eurythmics, Fairground Attraction, Foster and Lloyd, Femme Fatale, The Jazz Messengers, Mr. Mister, Mother Lovebone, whose remaining members became Mookie Blaylock and then Pearl Jam, Animotion, Platinum Blonde, Shalimar, Spandau Ballet, Wang Chung, White Snake, and Wax. Some of the biggest selling albums of 1990 were by Sinead O'Connor, along with MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em, Michael Bolton's Soul Provider, Aerosmith's Pump, Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, Don Henley's The End of the Innocence, The B-52's Cosmic Thing, Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl, Phil Collins' But Seriously, and Billy Joel's Stormfront. The biggest selling album of the year, though, belonged to Janet Jackson with Rhythm Nation 1814. Wilson Phillips had the biggest hit of 1990 with the song Hold On. Other big songs of 1990 included Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, Belle Biv's DeVoe's Poison, Mariah Carey's debut single, Vision of Love, Phil Collins' Another Day in Paradise, En Vogue's Hold On, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby, Madonna's Vogue from the Dick Tracy soundtrack, Billy Idol's Cradle of Love from the Adventures of Ford Fairlane soundtrack, Roxette's It Must Have Been Love from the Pretty Woman soundtrack, and John Bon Jovi's Blaze of Glory from the Young Guns soundtrack. While MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This was a huge radio hit, it was not originally released as its own single. The record label made people go and buy the entire album in order to get the one song, which was a smart business move on their part, as it was pre-Napster and pre-iTunes days, and record labels could regularly get away with that sort of behavior. The Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em album ended up selling 17 million copies and stayed at number one on the top albums charts for 21 weeks, mainly due to the strength of the song and them making everybody go out and buy it on the entire album. Of course, some of us waited by our boomboxes and tried to record it when it got played on the radio and prayed that the DJ didn't talk over it. But that's how it was back in the day, kids. Now get off my lawn. Anyway, the strength of MC Hammer's album and Vanilla Ice's album to the extreme helped to sanitize and water down hip-hop, for better or worse, just enough for suburban mothers to finally embrace it, or at the very least to let them tolerate their kids playing it. 
Soon, the media put hip-hop into two camps, pop hip-hop like MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice, and hardcore hip-hop like, say, Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet, Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted, Boogie Down Productions, Edutainment, and Gangstar's Step in the Arena, which the media love to demonize. What some critics and media members missed with all that divide-and-conquer media strategy was that there was room in hip-hop for everybody to succeed. You even had alternative hip-hop doing well, like Brand Nubian's One for All and A Tribe Called Quest People's Instinctive Travels and The Paths of Rhythm. In fact, while You Can't Touch This and Ice Ice Baby were dominating the top of the pop charts, other hip-hop songs did well too, such as LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out and the late great Bismarcky's 2 a.m. drunk at a karaoke bar song that everybody knows the words to, just a friend. So, while Hammer and Ice were looked at as watered-down fake rap back in the day, their success eventually helped out everybody, especially later in the decade when other artists like Jay-Z, Biggie, and Tupac took the torch and moved it forward. 1990 was also the year that Garth Brooks started his reign as country's king as his album No Fences went to number one. Other big albums were Randy Travis's Heroes and Friends, George Strait's Living It Up, Clint Black's Put Yourself in My Shoes, Ricky Van Shelton's RVS3, Hank William Jr.'s Lone Wolf, Reba McIntyre's Rumor Has It, Travis Tritt's Country Club, Alabama's Pass It On Down, and Alan Jackson's Here in the Real World. The top country music song was Nobody's Home by Clint Black. The rest of the top 10 was Hard Rock Bottom of Your Heart by Randy Travis, On Second Thought by Eddie Rabbit, Love Without End Amen by George Strait, Walking Away by Clint Black, I've Cried My Last Tear for You by Ricky Van Shelton, No Matter How High by the Oak Ridge Boys, Help Me Hold On by Travis Tritt, Chains by Patti Loveless, and Here in the Real World by Alan Jackson. Heavy metal and hard rock were still in full swing with new albums by Warrant, Winger, Extreme, Dio, Cinderella, Living Color, Striper, Tesla, Slaughter, Trickster, Crocus, Primus, Queensryche, Anthrax, Jane's Addiction, Iron Maiden, Cannibal Corpse, Ingve Malstein, Damn Yankees, Black Sabbath, and Suicidal Tendencies. 1990 was also the year, though, that the winds of change in rock started to blow as Alice in Chains and Soundgarden put out new albums and Pearl Jam formed. Nirvana put out their EP Bleach only a year earlier. Within the next two years, rock would go grunge and alternative, essentially killing off the hair bands, at least until nostalgia kicked in in the 2020s. Judas Priest were accused in a lawsuit of their song, Better By You, Better Than Me, being the cause of two teenagers' suicides. They would actually be found not guilty during the trial. The controversial Clash of the Titans tour with Slayer and Megadeth happened also in 1990. Dance music in 1990 was dominated by two genres. The first was the usual remixes of pop and R&B songs, along with dance pop favorites Madonna and Janet Jackson, of course, like you know and love by now. Uh, 
They were joined by new dance diva Kathy Dennis. Alternative dance also had a moment with Soho's Hippie Chick and D-Light's Groove is in the Heart. The second genre was Eurodance, which broke through in a big way while freestyle still held strong. The adventures of Stevie V had Dirty Cash, Money Talks. Two in a Room had Wiggle It, Just a Little Bit. While CNC Music Factory got hot with Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now. And Black Box had the hits Everybody, Everybody and Strike It Up. While Millie Vanilli got thrown under the bus for not singing on their own albums, they were not the only group to pull that maneuver, since that trick has actually been going on for decades with groups like Modern Talking and Boney M, for instance. Both CNC Music Factory and Black Box got busted for using thin models in their music videos pretending that they had sung their songs, while the real singer on some of their biggest hits was Weather Girl's former member Martha Wash. Martha sued for both credit and royalties and the cases were settled out of court. However, it not only exposed the music industry's dirty little secret about fake singers, it also brought up the style over substance issue in the video era as Martha Wash was plus-sized and incredibly talented, while the models who replaced her on the music videos and on the tours were skinny and, let's just say, not as good vocally as Martha was. Ambient music also got popular as Enigma's classic song, Sodness Part 1, became a big hit. Sodness Part 1 was actually named after the Marquis de Sade, just so people know. In fact, both ambient and New Age music got so popular in the 1990s that in 1994, a compilation album of Gregorian chants called Chants, that's the name of the album, went to number three on the Billboard Albums chart and sold two million copies in America alone. And I wish I was kidding about that, but I am not. Look it up. It was actually put out by the Benedictine monks of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain. Definitely look that up. A chant album hit number three on the Billboard charts. In Latin music, the big artists of 1990 included Ana Gabriel, Daniela Romo, Roberto Carlos, Jose Luis Rodriguez, Bronco, Rudy La Scala, Los Buques, Ricardo Montagnier, Jose Jose, Juan Luis Guerrera in 440, Frankie Ruiz, Los Tigres del Norte, and Caoma with the song Lombada, which was actually the big dance craze of that year. Remember, it was the Forbidden Dance. As far as the Grammys went for the music of 1990, Quincy Jones won Album of the Year for Back on the Block. Song of the Year was Bette Midler's From a Distance. Record of the Year went to Phil Collins for Another Day in Paradise. And Mariah Carey took home a very well-deserved Best New Artist Award. At the MTV Video Music Awards, Sinead O'Connor won Video of the Year for the song Nothing Compares to You, which was a video that showed mainly her head while she sang the song. Simplistic and extremely powerful. 
MC Hammer and Janet Jackson won at the American Music Awards. Phil Collins, Janet Jackson, Wilson Phillips, and Randy Travis won at the very first Billboard Music Awards that year. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Croatia, which at that time was actually Yugoslavia, Italy won. At the Tony Awards, City of Angels won Best Musical, and Gypsy won Best Revival of a Musical. At the Academy Awards, John Barry won Best Original Score for Dances with Wolves. Best Original Song was Sooner or Later, written by Stephen Sondheim and produced and recorded by Madonna from Dick Tracy. The Pulitzer Prize for Music was won by Mel Powell for Duplicates, a concerto for two pianos and orchestra. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on January 17, 1990 at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. At the ceremony, the hall inducted the songwriting teams of Holland, Dozier, and Holland and Jerry Goffin and Carol King into the non-performers category. Louis Armstrong, Charlie Christian, and Ma Rainey were inducted into the early influencers category. And in the performers category, the hall inducted Hank Ballard, Bobby Darin, The Four Seasons, The Four Tops, The Kinks, The Platters, The Who, and this next duo. Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, or Simon and Garfunkel if you will, were one of the biggest selling musical duos of all time. They, along with the Mamas and Papas and the Beatles, were among the symbols of the 1960s counterculture movement. Paul Simon was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1941, and Art Garfunkel was born in Queens, New York in 1941. They both had an early love of music, with Simon learning to play guitar and Garfunkel studying piano. They attended the same elementary school and became friends, bonding over their shared musical interests. Simon and Garfunkel drew inspiration from a variety of musical traditions, including folk rock and gospel. They were heavily influenced by the folk music revival of the early 1960s, particularly the music of artists such as Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, and Bob Dylan. Simon's interest in rock and roll also contributed to their sound, with the influence of bands such as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones very evident in some of their later works, at least. Additionally, they were inspired by the gospel music they heard in church as children, which contributed to the spiritual themes present in many of their songs. Simon and Garfunkel began performing together as teenagers, initially as Tom and Jerry. In the late 1950s, as Tom and Jerry, they had a minor hit with the song Hey Schoolgirl. They broke up for a few years so that Paul could go to college, but then they reunited in 1963 to record a folk album under their own names this time around. They also changed their music from pop to folk music. Their first album, 1964's Wednesday Morning 3AM, was produced by Tom Wilson, who had previously worked with Bob Dylan and featured Simon and Garfunkel's trademark harmonies and acoustic guitar playing. The album originally did badly, so, of course, they broke up. Breaking up, by the way, would be a running theme throughout their entire careers, in case you couldn't tell. It's already happened twice, and they haven't even gotten going yet. 
What brought them back together this time around, at least, was that someone took their song, The Sound of Silence, from their first album and mixed it with electric guitar and drums. That remix version took off two years after its original release. So, of course, the guys got back together and recorded another album. That song, now titled The Sounds of Silence, was included on their second album, also called The Sounds of Silence. What followed was their albums Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thine, and bookends along with their contributions to the soundtrack to the motion picture The Graduate. They also had a string of very now familiar hits, including Mrs. Robinson, Cecilia, Homeward Bound, I Am a Rock, A Hazy Shade of Winter, Scarborough Fair, and The Boxer. In 1970, just before yet another breakup, the duo released what became their biggest selling album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. The title song was written by Paul Simon and employs the Phil Spector patented wall of sound production technique of overloading the instruments on the recording. The song was the last one recorded, but was actually the first one completely finished for the album. It was supposed to be sung by the both of them, but it was decided that singing duties should go to Garfunkel on this one. The song was released in January of 1970 and became a big hit. It sold over 6 million copies worldwide, and it also won the duo five Grammy Awards, including Record and Song of the Year. The duo over the past 50 years have routinely had reunions that were busted before they even got going. The guys managed to record a song together in the 1970s that did well, called My Little Town. In the 1980s, Paul asked Art to contribute to Paul's album Hearts and Bones. Paul ended up not using any of that on the actual album, which led to yet another falling out. The duo also had a memorable concert in Central Park in 1981 and a brief concert tour or two, or three or four. Paul, of course, went on to have a very successful solo career. One of Art's cousins, incidentally, was Lou Pearlman. If that name sounds familiar, it should, because he would go on to become famous as the manager of the Backstreet Boys and in sync. And then he would end up in jail where he would pass away from financial misdoings, to be nice about it. Considering that the duo were together for not really that long, they put out some amazing music, with all five of their studio albums going platinum, with Bridge Over Trouble Water selling over 8 million copies. What made Simon and Garfunkel so popular was their sound, which had close vocal harmonies, folk-influenced acoustic instrumentation, and their introspective lyrics. Their music often conveyed a sense of melancholy and nostalgia, exploring themes of loss, love, and much like most folk music at the time, the human condition. Their vocal blend was a defining characteristic of their sound, with Simon's clear tenor voice often taking the lead with Garfunkel's high harmonies adding a haunting quality to their music. Their instrumentation was often sparse, consisting of Simon's acoustic guitar and Garfunkel's occasional piano accompaniment, with occasional use of additional musicians or orchestration, especially on the songs Bridge Over Troubled Waters. 
The stripped-down approach allowed their lyrics to take center stage, emphasizing the emotional depth and introspective nature of their songs, which was brilliant when you think about it, and more artists should do that these days. Simon and Garfunkel's influence can be heard in the works of many artists who had followed in their footsteps. Their lyrics and emphasis on the vocal harmonies helped to pave the way for the singer-songwriter movement of the 1970s, with artists such as James Taylor and Carole King citing them as an influence. Their stripped-down instrumentation and folk-inspired sound also contributed to the development of the Americana and indie folk genres. Additionally, their music has been covered by a wide range of artists, from Aretha Franklin to the Bangles to even Bob Dylan, and their songs continue to be a staple on classic rock radios that you know and love. Presented for induction by Class of 2000 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee James Taylor, Paul Simon, and Art Garfunkel, better known as Simon and Garfunkel. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Class of 1990. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we're going to make the case for you to vote for Cheryl Crow to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cheryl Crow, for those of you not in the know, is a singer-songwriter, guitarist, and occasional actress who has become one of the most successful and respected musicians of her generation, i.e. Gen X. Born in Kennett, Missouri in 1962, Crow began her music career in the 1980s as a backup singer for various artists, including Michael Jackson and the Rolling Stones. While Cheryl's put out 11 albums, the bulk of her hits came from her first four albums. In 1993, Crow released her debut album, Tuesday Night Music Club, which had huge hits like Leaving Las Vegas, Strong Enough, and her number one smash, All I Want to Do Is Have Some Fun. Tuesday Night Music Club was an instant success, selling over 7 million copies worldwide. It was also a critical and commercial triumph as well, winning Crow three Grammy Awards, including Best New Artist. Her follow-up album, Cheryl Crow, was released in 1996 and was also well-received by critics and fans alike, with the hits If It Makes You Happy and Every Day is a Winding Road. Her third album, The Globe Sessions, had My Favorite Mistake, and her fourth album, Come On, Come On, had Steve McQueen and Soak Up the Sun. Crow is known for her distinctive voice, her well-crafted songs, and her engaging stage presence. She has won nine Grammy Awards over the course of her career, and her music has been praised for its honesty, its soulful arrangements, and its heartfelt lyrics. In addition to her music, Crow is 
also known for her political activism, and she has been involved in various environmental and social causes over the years, including working with the World Health Organization to raise awareness about the global issue of breast cancer. Aside from having a ton of hits in the first decade of her career, the reasons why Cheryl's being considered for induction are for her songwriting, which Taylor Swift and Miranda Lambert have both credited as being influential to their songwriting. Along with her blending of country, rock, and pop music, which influenced a number of artists, including Hozier. Plus, she was among a group of female artists in the 1990s, along with Sarah McLachlan and Paula Cole, who broke down more barriers for women in rock music. Cheryl's longevity in the music business and her continued popularity, even after taking a few years off, is to be admired, as well as her music, which can still be heard on radio stations to this day, as well as probably way too many commercials, especially Soak Up the Sun, which seems to be in virtually every Sunny D ad known to mankind. In any event, you can vote for Cheryl Crow to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Go to rockhall.com to vote. That's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M. You can vote for up to five artists every day until the end of April or so. The link to the voting page is in the show notes. This week's spotlight is going to focus on a museum. This museum is not strictly about music, though. The Smithsonian National Museum of American History is located on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. The museum is one of a number of Smithsonian museums on the National Mall. It's normally open every single day, except for Christmas, from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Admission, by the way, is free. After all, your tax dollars paid for it. This museum concentrates on American history, specifically concerning military history, cultural history, and scientific history. There's tons of cultural artifacts that are in the museum's collection, including Archie Bunker's chair from the TV show All in the Family, one of the C-3PO and R2-D2 robots from Star Wars, and the Fonz's leather jacket from Happy Days. Musically, the museum has one of Prince's guitars and one of Tito Puente's percussion setups. One of the items in the museum's collection is attached to what we are going to talk about next. Let us talk about a musical movie that owes its being made to a Disney movie and was also plagued with problems. A lot of problems. For starters, this movie musical had at least 18 different writers touching its script, yet only three received the official writing credit. It went through numerous cast changes, including turning down two Hollywood legends, and it barely made any money for its studio. Yet, it was a critical success, was up for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and later found success in pop culture status when it started getting played on television. 
This movie was originally a silent movie back in 1910, but the sound version was only greenlit by its studio, MGM, because of the earlier success of Disney's animated movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which proved that audiences would go see movies based on children's books. The original script for the movie was pretty dark, and MGM absolutely hated it. They gave it to three different writers to come up with something different, but didn't tell the writers that each of them were writing the screenplay. Then, they took the best ideas, flushed out the characters, gave it to a bunch more writers to punch up the script, and finally, they had a working script to work with. Out of all of those writers, by the way, only three of them received official credit for the screenplay. Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. Next up came the casting. Hollywood legend W.C. Fields had a great role lined up in it, but couldn't agree on the money, so he was dropped. Another Hollywood legend, Shirley Temple, was supposedly up for the main role, but things didn't work out there either. Actress Deanna Durbin was also up for the main role, but was dropped. Most think it was because her singing style was very operatic. Buddy Ebsen, who later found fame on television in the TV shows Barnaby Jones and also the Beverly Hillbillies, was up for a role but was forced out when another actor who already had the role in the movie, Ray Bolger, wanted Buddy's role instead. Jack Haley rounded out the main cast once Bolger snagged the other role. Even the directing had problems. There were actually four directors during production, although Victor Fleming receives the directing credit because it was really his vision. Finally, on August 25th, 1939, after all of that, the movie was released. It made just over $3 million, which is just under $65 million in today's money. However, it had a movie budget of $2.777 million, or just over $60 million in today's money, so in actuality, it really netted less than $5 million in today's money. Listen, at least it got to the break-even point and made a little extra on the side. Most movies don't even do that, especially back in those days. However, the movie was a critical success and went up for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, where it was mowed down, unfortunately, by a juggernaut of a movie that year called Gone with the Wind. Fun fact, by the way, Gone with the Wind is actually the biggest movie of all time if you base the number on the number of movie tickets sold, not amount of money made, because, of course, the amount of money switches depending on inflation. Gone with the Wind's movie ticket sales actually beat out all of the Star Wars movies, Titanic, Avatar, and the Avengers movies, just for the record. Let's get back to our main movie, though, because that was not actually the end of its run. See, in 1956, CBS aired the movie on television. It was so popular that for decades they aired it on television every single year. So much so that it's now considered a pop culture classic, along with other movies that bombed at the box office that found life on television afterwards, like It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Story. 
This particular movie is now actually part of the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. The movie that had W.C. Fields originally as The Wizard, and that role ended up going to Frank Morgan. Shirley Temple, then Deanna Durbin, had the role of Dorothy until they couldn't come up with the money or the voice just wasn't right. The role eventually ended up going to Judy Garland in a breakout performance. Ray Bulger, who originally had the role of the Tin Man, but wanted the role of the Scarecrow so badly that he forced out Buddy Ebsen, who actually had the role and was far more gracious about it than I think I would have been just saying. The movie that had witches, ruby slippers, and gave munchkins lifelong employment by getting paid to be seen at sci-fi conventions everywhere. And, of course, the movie that had the classic line, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Never go after the dog. That's a bad look. The movie musical The Wizard of Oz, of course premiered in wide release on August 25th, 1939, and one pair of the famous ruby slippers that Judy Garland wore when she sang Over the Rainbow is in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. Music